Thank you. I'm delighted to be here today, and I, I always begin by saying I'm delighted to be here, and sometimes I mean it more earnestly than others, <laughs> but this is one of those times I really do mean it, because I, I come to uh, Washington probably a couple of times a year anyway, and sometimes five or six times, and at least once when I'm here every year, I come here to the National Portrait Gallery. I, I love this place. And, I've uh, been to, to many exhibits here, ran up and looked at the Alt exhibit this morning, which was great. And uh, I'm a sucker for Norman Rockwell. I remember when I came to the Rockwell exhibit a year or two ago uh, when I was here. So I, I really do mean that I'm, I'm uh, delighted to be here. And, and in fact, I'm honored that you've uh, invited me uh, uh, here today. <clears throat> so. Uh, with that said, let me uh, let me uh, get on with it. I'd, I'd like to uh, try to wrap it up in less than 30 minutes if I can, because I enjoy questions and answers. Uh, that gives me an idea of what's on your mind, and uh, that's the only way I can learn what's what's on your mind. I can't always answer the questions, but I, I look forward to to trying. Uh, my book is on the, the struggle to declare independence, and let me try to uh, begin by, mention, by, by going to the end, actually. On July the 1st, 1776, John Adams awakened uh, early in the morning in his uh, boarding house in Philadelphia, got up and by candlelight wrote a letter to a friend. Uh, and said, today is assigned for the greatest debate of all. It's the debate on uh, whether or not to declare independence. And then Adams, who was a leader in Congress and had his finger on the pulse of Congress, knew exactly what Congress was going to do and gave it away in his next line, may heaven prosper the newborn republic. He knew that Congress was going to vote for independence. The only thing he didn't know was whether it would be on July the 1st or July the 2nd. And even though Adams knew that the vote uh, on independence was foreordained, no one knew better than Adams how difficult the struggle had been to get to to this point. Uh, in fact, Adams himself, reflecting on um, his time in Congress many years later, uh, said that every major issue had been decided by a close vote, many by only one vote, uh, he said. And he knew that it had been a long time in coming. And if, if you stop and think about it, the first great protest against British policies, against the Stamp Act, had been 11 years earlier. Uh, the British had sent an army to occupy Boston eight years earlier. The Boston Massacre had occurred six years earlier. The Boston Tea Party almost three years earlier. The war, incredibly, the war had broken out 15 months earlier, so for 15 months, Americans, both uh, soldiers and civilians, had been dying. So what were they fighting for uh, during that time? Not for independence, they were fighting to be reconciled with Great Britain. And now, finally, in July of 76, 
the issue was was independence and the matter was going to to be settled. Always in Congress, uh, First Continental Congress that met in the fall of 1774 or the Second Continental Congress that begins in May of 75 and runs to and beyond independence, in both of those Congresses there were always two factions. The majority faction, at least into early 1776, favored reconciliation with Great Britain. Uh, uh, they were a faction that, for, for lack of a better term, I'm going to call the conservatives in Congress. I searched through letters after letter after letter trying to find a, a delegate who might have given a name to these two factions. And the only thing I could come up with was one delegate on one side characterized his faction as the sensible members of Congress, <laughs> and one on the other side characterized his as the energetic members of Congress. Well, that doesn't tell us very much. So I, I'm going to make up a term, uh, conservatives on one side and radicals on the other side. Not very good names, I, I'm the first to admit, but I can't think of anything better than that. The conservatives uh, at the first Congress uh, desperately wanted to avoid war. They certainly were willing to protest against British policy, but they wanted to avoid war and they wanted to send notices to London uh, assuring Lond the government in London of their loyalty uh, and hoping that that would be enough to, to bring the British to their senses and uh, bring about some sort of negotiation that would avert uh, war. The, the radicals wanted to push harder at the first uh, Congress. They didn't want war necessarily, though I think they realized that war was probably unavoidable. And it was, because the first Congress boycotted British trade. And when the British learned what the Congress had done, they learned that the first Congress had defied Great Britain, would not obey the coercive acts, and it was fighting against those uh, by boycotting British trade. Then the British government had a tough decision to make. Uh, they could either go to war or they could surrender to the Americans or they could choose some uh, middle ground and uh, there was no middle ground left. They chose war at that point or at least they, they could not see any middle ground. So that by the time the second Congress comes back, war has broken out and Lexington and Concord and Massachusetts on April 19th, 1775. The conservatives who are in Congress support the war, but they want to send a petition, what became known as the Olive Branch Petition, to London. Uh, and in that petition, they implored King George III to uh, intervene in this crisis. He was the only official who represented everybody in the empire, at least in theory he did, and they believed that he could use his offices to uh, intervene and open negotiations with America. And if, if negotiations could occur, then possibly some sort of solution could be found. The colonies could remain in the empire and the war 
after uh, a short period uh, would come to, to an end. Uh, the conservatives, I think, who pushed that agenda were, were conservatives uh, for probably as many reasons as there were conservatives. But I think probably three things uh, uh, really define them. On the one hand, they loved Great Britain. And they weren't alone. I think most of the colonists had deep affection for Great Britain. There were some Irish who maybe didn't have that much affection for them. And there were a lot of German immigrants who came over who weren't natives of Great Britain. But most of the colonists, I think, did look on uh, Great Britain as the freest place in the Western world, freest in terms of religious freedom and political freedoms. Uh, with, a with a king who uh, was not a tyrant, at least until recently he hadn't been thought of as, uh, as a tyrant. So there was a great deal of love really on both sides uh, for, for Great Britain. But in addition to that, the conservatives also, uh, I think, had economic reasons for wanting to remain in the empire. There were conservatives every place. But the conservatives were strongest south of New England in colonies that had a great deal of economic contact with, with England. Uh, and that economic contact, in fact, flourished at least in part because of their relationship with England. Their trade was protected by the British Navy when it was on the high seas. They got their insurance for the goods that they shipped over from uh, insurance firms in, in Great Britain. Uh, and so why, why destroy a good thing? If they could be reconciled with Great Britain, that trade could continue uh, to flourish. But then thirdly, I think, and this is why I chose the name conservatives for them, they were social and political conservatives. They feared that if reconciliation didn't occur, didn't occur, the outcome inevitably would be independence. And they feared that independence would be followed by sweeping social uh, revolutionary changes and revolutionary political changes. And you know what? They were exactly right. That's what happened. Uh, after independence was declared and by the time the revolution had run its course, socially this was a much more egalitarian society than it had been previously. There, were, there was a long way to go, of course, and we're still fighting for equality in the 21st uh, century. But America by the end of the 18th century was a far more egalitarian place than it had been uh, before the American Revolution. And politically, America had become a democracy by the end of the 18th century. Uh, all adult white males could vote. Women couldn't vote. African Americans couldn't vote. Those struggles would come down the road. But still, before the American Revolution, up to upwards of 35 or 40 percent of adult white males could not vote in the colonies. So this was a sweeping political change with uh, enormous 
ramifications uh, for life in America. And that was exactly what the conservatives feared would, would happen. On the other hand, uh, and I, I might mention too that the leader of the conservatives, I just saw his painting, uh, a painting of him out uh, here this morning, which I've seen many times here uh, before, uh, was John Dickinson of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dickinson, uh, at the time the first Congress met, may have been the best-known American, uh, better known certainly than George Washington or John Adams uh, uh, or Thomas Jefferson, uh, possibly better known than uh, Samuel Adams. Dickinson had written a pamphlet uh, back in 1768 entitled Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. Uh, and uh, it was the best selling of all of the pamphlets that appeared before 1776 dealing with this Anglo-American uh, crisis. And it made Dickinson into something of a national uh, figure. In fact, there was a wax museum in Boston, and uh, Dickinson's figure was made in in wax and displayed in that that museum. So his his picture appeared in almanacs and whatever, and he became the probably the best known American. So he he leads the the conservative forces. The other side that I've called the radicals is is far more difficult to define. Um, like the conservatives, they supported the war, but unlike the conservatives, there were some things they didn't want to do for fear that it would, would show weakness on the Americans' part. They weren't very happy with making this olive branch petition to the king uh, because they, they were fearful that people would say, well, the Americans are desperate for peace. They'll do anything uh, for, for peace. But they had to go along with it. Not only did the conservatives have a majority in Congress in 1775, uh, but uh, if the war was going to be fought, American unity had to be maintained, and you, you couldn't drive the conservatives away. Uh, the leader of the radical faction in Congress by the summer of 1775 became John Adams. And the fact that Adams would emerge as a political leader was, I think, one of the most remarkable political occurrences in all of American political history. And I say that because John Adams had virtually no political experience when he came to Congress. Uh, he had served on, on the board of selectmen in his hometown of Braintree. That, that would be what most of us would call a city council uh, today. And he had been elected to the Massachusetts Assembly in 1771, but fell ill after he had served only two or three weeks and uh, dropped out. So th that was the extent of, of his political service. So it was, in a way, strange that he was even selected as one of the four delegates that Massachusetts sent to the first Congress. Strange until you think who selected those four delegates. And it was Samuel Adams who selected them, and he put his cousin on, on that, in that group of delegates. 
in part, I think, because John was a lawyer who had a reputation of being somewhat conservative. Um, uh, he had, after all, defended the British soldiers who had been charged with the Boston Massacre. So he wasn't seen as a fire eater. And people from outside New England tended to, to think of uh, those Yankees up there in New England as firebrands uh, and ultra-radical, and they were driving this whole thing. After all, uh, the Boston Massacre had occurred in New England. The Boston Tea Party had occurred in New England. The, the uh, bloodiest riots in, against the Stamp Act had occurred in Boston. And John Adams, uh, by contrast, appeared to be rather conservative. And I suspect, too, he was also uh, added to the delegation by Samuel Adams because Samuel thought, this guy's so callow, I can manipulate him. I can tell him what to do. And in fact, when the, when the Massachusetts delegation came to the first Congress, uh, they, they decided on Samuel Adams's orders to sort of stay in the shadows and not say anything so that they would appear to be uh, rather docile and anything but extremely radical. But when John Adams came back to the second Congress, he had decided he was going to play a leadership role. In fact, if you read his diary before he came down to the first Congress, he's really overawed uh, by the prospect of serving with these greatest po uh, politicians in America. And the more he sat and listened to them and watched them, the more he came to the conclusion, I'm not only as good as they are, I'm better than most of them. And uh, so he really emerges as a leader, as what Benjamin Rush called the first man of the house, the leader of the radical faction in the uh, Continental Congress. Uh, Second Continental Congress by, by about June of 75. And a Adams, I think, like some radicals, I, I think Samuel Adams would fall into this category and so would Jefferson and so would George Washington. Uh, and without a doubt, uh, Benjamin Franklin, who virtually is the only one to almost say it publicly, I think those those individuals and some others probably had already come to the conclusion that independence was desirable for America. Some, I think, reached that conclusion as far back as the 1760s, some not until about 1773 or even 74. But certainly by the time the war breaks out, um, many of those who were radicals favored independence, but they just couldn't say it openly. To, to do so uh, was not only treasonous, and they were in the midst of a war that they might lose, uh, but they couldn't drive away the, the conservatives. So the conservatives really put everything on, uh, for them everything hinges on the king's intervention to, to uh, save the empire and bring about American reconciliation. For the radicals, on the other hand, their strategy was, a was essentially to play for time, that time was on their side. And who was right? Well, the radicals were right. 
uh, time was on their side. Uh, it, it need not have been that way, I don't think, and this is one of the arguments that I try to make in the book. I think independence could have been prevented, uh, at least for that generation of 1776. It might have been declared subsequently, but I, I think it could have been avoided in 1776. There were so many who favored reconciliation they were the dominant faction, and they were strong in virtually every colony, really in, it, it dominated uh, the colonial assemblies everywhere, that if the British king had responded to the Olive Branch petition, if he would have sent peace commissioners who were authorized to engage in legitimate negotiations with the Americans, then I think some sort of settlement could have been uh, reached, uh, but he, he, he didn't do that. And on the other hand, as I said, the radicals were gambling that time was on their side, and it was, for several reasons. For one thing, I think many Americans were embittered by what had happened, especially once the war broke out. Uh, they were angry with this a mother country that they had loved so much. They felt, after all, that they had been loyal to England during the, the last war, 20 years earlier, the French and Indian War, we call it Seven Years' War, the Europeans uh, call it today. Uh, the colonists raised large armies in that war. Year after year, they fielded armies of about 20,000 men. In Virginia, George Washington is commanding the Virginia Regiment year after year, uh, uh, and, a, and that colony is fielding about 2,000 men out of the 20,000 that were raised. So they, they served loyally, and their payback for that was taxation without representation and all of the other things that the British did that angered them. So they were embittered by the war, but secondly, they were radicalized by the war. Every time a family lost a son or a brother or a husband, uh, that family was radicalized. British soldiers had killed those members, that member of their, their family. And so the war, as often is the case, had a radicalizing effect on the Americans. And you didn't have to be a soldier to be radicalized. Uh, Abigail Adams, John Adams' wife, was radicalized by the war. She lived in Braintree, a suburb of Boston, and from the very moment the war begins, an American army besie a larger American army besieges a smaller British army in Boston. And almost inevitably, by the fall of 1775, camp diseases broke out in both armies, and those, those diseases began to spread out into the towns around Boston. And uh, it, hit, it hit Braintree, and Abigail Adams's mother died of the disease. A servant in her household died of the disease. Her son 
fell ill with the disease and almost died, and she fell ill with the disease and almost died. In fact, um, I, I can't prove this, but I would be almost willing to bet that probably more civilians in Braintree had died from the war by the end of 1775 than was true of the men from Braintree who were actually bearing arms uh, in the militia or in the, in the Continental Army. That fall, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband, to John, uh, a letter in which she pours out her feelings toward Lord North, the British Prime Minister whom she blames for this war. O Lord North, may the groans and cries harrow up thy soul. Great Britain is a tyrant state. Let us separate. They are unworthy to be our brethren, she says. And there were many like Abigail Adams who were radicalized by the war. Then the turning point really occurs in January of 1776. Three things happen. Two of them happened within 36 hours of one another. The third happened about two weeks later. First, in the second week in January, news arrived of a speech by King George III opening Parliament the previous October. News is just now getting to Philadelphia and is published in a Philadelphia paper. And George III, the British monarch, says in that speech that the colonists are traitors. He is not going to answer the Olive Branch petition. In fact, he had refused to even accept it because he didn't recognize the Continental Congress as a legitimate body. He promises to use force to suppress the rebellion, and he promises condign punishment, as he put it, for those who supported the rebellion. So everything that the conservatives had hoped for had now gone down the drain. George III had not intervened. 36 hours later, Thomas Paine's Common Sense was published. If Dickinson's pamphlet had been the bestseller until this time, Paine's outsold him by about 50 times. Uh, it was about 2,000 to, to 100,000. Uh, copies sold by the end of 1776. And what Paine did in that pamphlet was give a meaning to the revolution. He calls for independence, uh, brings it out of the closet, so to speak, and he uh, attacks the concept of reconciliation. It says America will be better off uh, independent than it would be being part of the British Empire. Peace and prosperity will be the result of independence. And he gave a meaning to, to what was going on. People had thought of it to this point as a protest against taxes, but he depicts this as a revolution to establish republican government. And he says something that's really almost breathtaking. The American, he doesn't use the term American Revolution, but these events in America uh, 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 with American independence will be the birthday of a new world, that what happens here will inspire people across the Atlantic. We, we still think that. Everything, we, we go across 
the ocean thousands of miles away to build governments, certain that we can inspire them. It's a deeply rooted idea, and Paine was drawing on that idea when he wrote this. And then the third thing that happened was later in the month, word came in of the defeat of an American army in Canada. Uh, not just a defeat, but a, the utter defeat of an American army led by Richard Montgomery and Benedict Arnold, who was still on our side in the Battle of Quebec. And that defeat was a wake-up call for the, for the Congress that the only way that America could win this war would be through foreign assistance. And the only way it could gain foreign assistance would be uh, by declaring independence. Because there was nothing in it for France or Spain or any other European country if our aim was to remain part of Great Britain. But if we became independent and they could trade with us and Britain would be weaker because they had lost 30% of their trade with America, then uh, they might ally with America, they might help America. And so this really starts the, the final movement toward independence. And it's on Ju uh, July the 1st, as Adam said, the question comes up. It's discussed all that day and into the next day. And on July the 2nd, Congress votes for independence. Uh, in fact, my wife and I always get out the grill and grill some hamburgers on July the 2nd because that's Independence Day. So why do we celebrate it on the 4th? Well, immediately after declaring independence on the 2nd, Congress began editing the Declaration of Independence. It spent about 12 hours over three days uh, editing it, cutting it down by about a third uh, taking some parts out altogether, uh, that, such as a, 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 an attack on slavery that unfortunately was taken out, in, in my estimation. Uh, and it voted then for the Declaration of Independence on July the 4th. And the next year, uh, when the anniversary came around, uh, somebody on July the 2nd in Congress said, oh my God, we forgot to celebrate independence. It was today. And they said, well, let's, let's very quickly put together some sort of celebration and we'll do it on July the 4th because that's when we sent out the Declaration of Independence. We proved that. And so that was the first time it was celebrated and that remains uh, the, the day that we celebrate it. Let me conclude. You all know that Jefferson was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence. But one of the things that I, I mention in the, in the book is that no one knew that at the time. It wasn't really until almost 15 years after uh, the, um, 1776 that uh, the American people began to learn that Jefferson had been the principal author of the, the Declaration. And not only that, but Pauline Meyer in her book, American Scripture, that, that deals more specifically just with the Declaration of, of Independence, where mine is really a, a study of the 30 months uh, between the Boston Tea Party and July the 4th of uh, 76. 
as Pauline Meyer says in, in her book, uh, the, the American people didn't forget the Declaration of Independence during the war, but they largely ignored it. Uh, Jefferson succeeded so well in capturing what they, what they believed. Uh, but by the 1790s, Jefferson was the head of one of the two major political parties, and his party made sure that everyone knew that the head of its party had been the author of the Declaration of Independence. And I close my book by, by, with this final paragraph. But it was not mere happenstance or politics that caused the Declaration of Independence to become America's most treasured text. The Declaration's content and Jefferson's felicitous composition caused those who came after 1776 to embrace and sanctify it. Jefferson wrote about the threats faced by his generation, but he succeeded in penning a timeless message, an affirmation of human liberty and dignity that has captured the hopes of succeeding generations. In time, new generations emerged and faced their own battles against tyranny and injustice. Whether the struggle was against slavery or racial oppression or for the rights of workers or women, in the course of these crusades, people born long after 1776 discovered the Declaration of Independence's ringing passages on equality and natural rights. As they drew sustenance from what Jefferson had said America stood for, the Declaration of Independence at last came to be a living document for Americans, a statement that embodied the national credo and gave an enduring meaning to the American Revolution. Thank you. I'd be happy. I, I love to take questions, as I said. I taught for about 40 years, so I got plenty of questions from students. Uh -huh. I have a question on the, on the British side. Mm -hmm. Was there any um, strength to a reconciliation on their end? There was. I, I sort of truncated my remarks, but a portion of my book deals with what was going on in Great Britain as well. And there was a large uh, minority faction, always a minority faction, grew steadily as the war went along, but it was always a minority faction that, that feared a loss of the empire and urged some sort of negotiation that might patch things up. And people like Edmund Burke and uh, Charles James Fox, the Earl of Chatham, who we know better as William Pitt, for ex were leading figures in, in that movement. And they urged a number of things. Uh, repeal all taxes, uh, for example, remove uh, the British Army from North America, pledge never to keep a British Army here uh, in peacetime recognize the Continental Congress as a legitimate body and deal with it. So they, they made a number of proposals that uh, the British might have pursued, uh, but as I said, George III just, just uh, wouldn't, wouldn't go that, that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, Francis James and others have talked about uh, the uh, urges of the colonials to expand to the West and the, which the British policy of uh, in protecting the uh, American Indians didn't uh, 
I didn't go, I, I was counter to. And also, uh, so how, how big a role did that, imp, uh, that uh, imperial idea play in that? Uh, sure, yeah. And, the, and, and also, what was the purpose behind the American invasion of Canada? Okay. Uh, well, let me take the second one first. Uh, initially, Congress uh, directed Washington not to invade Canada. But then uh, they, got, they, they had sent agents up to Canada, and they were getting intelligence reports. Turned out not to be so accurate, but they were getting intelligence <coughs> reports that there was widespread support for the American rebellion and that Canadians would assist any army that, that came in. After all, most of them were French, and they had only been part of the British Empire for a bit more than, than a decade. And so I think they thought we can, we can invade Canada, we can score a victory there relatively easily. It was, it was weakly held by the British. It was only a very small British army uh, there. And uh, I, I think probably there were diverse uh, hopes for, for taking Canada. Some probably saw it as once we get independent, we'll have all this land uh, to our, for our own. And others who were more conservative probably saw it as a bargaining chip. If we, if we get Canada, then we, we'll uh, tell Britain we'll give Canada back to you in return for an end to, end to the war. So I think those were the factors that, that went into Canada. As far as the West is concerned, um, I think probably different people looked on it differently. New England wasn't that concerned with the West, but down in Virginia, uh, people certainly uh, were. And the British had stopped uh, movement west of the so-called Proclamation Line of 1763, so people could not move out to uh, to the Trans-Appalachian West without British authorization. And uh, I think that, that angered people. People had fought during the French and Indian War with the expectation that those lands would be, would be open um, uh, rather soon. And I think probably one of those people was George Washington. Washington owned about 60,000 acres out west, mostly in what's now West Virginia, but was Western uh, Virginia at that time. And Washington wanted that, that area opened up because the faster it was opened, then the faster he could begin selling uh, the lands that, that he owned out there. And in fact, Washington uh, was, was under the impression at the end of the French and Indian War which comes to an end 13 years before independence is declared. Washington was under the impression that London would very rapidly establish a colony out there, more or less in the area where Kentucky would be located today. And Washington wanted that because a colony meant a colony government, a colonial government. It meant that there would be a, a militia. It, would, it meant that the Indians would be pacified, which would mean that the area would be opened up for people to start moving in. But year after year went by, and the British never created that, that colony out west. And I think it, for Washington and, and for others as well, uh, the sense begins to grow through the 1760s and 1770s uh, we ought to, ought to be in charge of our, of our own affairs. We ought to control our destiny. 
were capable of, of doing that. Th there was a theory that was very prevalent in the 18th century that nations went through a lifespan that was uh, pretty much identical to, to people. Uh, they were infants and then they came of age um, uh, as young adults and they're strong and they're vigorous and they're capable of doing things and then they reach middle age, they're not as strong any longer but they're presumably wiser at that point and then there's a final stage of senescence and decline and the fall of that nation. And uh, Americans bought in, and many Americans bought into that theory, and I think they looked on themselves as, uh, in essence, we're 21 years old at this point. They didn't put it that way, obviously, but they're, they're young and they're vigorous and they're capable of standing on their own two feet. They don't need British protection any longer, and they want to control their own destiny now. Mm -hmm. um, Years after the war, uh, maybe with the exception of Washington, who seems to have been pretty well supported from all factions, I guess, you hear about the bitter and ugly conversations against politicians, usually through the media, I guess, on both sides. Certainly Jefferson Adams is one of those, but Alexander Hamilton and right. others that had incredibly bitter and ugly feelings about the opposition. Was that also true during the lead up to the Declaration, where the conservatives and the radicals terribly angry with each other and very bitter in their discussions? Well, was it more yeah, there, there was uh, some bitterness uh, in the debates in Congress, but they, they kept the bitterness out of the press and away from the public. They, they really tried to maintain a show of unity to, to the outside world. And I think they really tried their best to maintain uh, uh, cordiality within the within the halls of of Congress. They fell into a practice early on, for example, of going to dinner together on Saturday afternoon, uh, and that was a practice that that continued uh, for for quite a while. And many of them would go over in the evening after the sessions and have uh, dinner together or have a beer together, or something of that sort. And um, uh, so uh, there were strains, and sometimes, sometimes the debates got, got really fierce. But nothing like the nothing like uh, happened in the in the in the 1790s. But I think the big difference is that they have to maintain this unity if they're going to continue the protest. So people probably tried tried harder. In the 1790s, in fact, I, I, I have a contract with my my publisher, and I've been working on it since I sent this manuscript in. My my next book is going to be a book that uh, compares the character and ideas and personalities of Jefferson and Hamilton. So I've, I've been living with this partisanship of the 1790s for, for a time now, and it was really, really fierce. And, but uh, it, it was especially fierce, I think, because both sides understood that the decisions that were being made would shape America for generations to come. Because that was, that was true in 1776 as well. 
But I, I think the big difference was they had to try to maintain unity if they were going to continue the war at, at that point. Mm -hmm. Back in the back. Back here. Yeah. Uh, on the unity theme, uh, the contentious issues that were dropped in the de declaration that you mentioned, was that because of they wanted unity amongst the colonies? Did they drop them again? Right. Well, actually, I think what happens is um, after that long debate on, on July the 1st, there's a procedural vote. One of these parliamentary test votes was taken. And in that test vote, two colonies voted against independence. Pennsylvania and South Carolina voted against it. And uh, Adams and the other radicals, um, they knew they could get independence, but they wanted unanimity. I mean, th this is such an, a crucial decision. And even when South Carolina votes against independence, Edmund Rutledge, who was the head of their delegation, uh, followed by saying, let's not take a definitive vote right now. Let's wait until tomorrow to do that. And he then added, I think some members of the delegation will change their votes overnight. Well, he was a politician and he knew what was going on. And we don't know exactly what happened, but my guess is that a deal was worked out that night that when they took up the Declaration of Independence, that section that Jefferson had written that attacked slavery. It was an attack both on slavery and an attack on the king for allegedly having imposed slavery on America that that section would be taken out and it was excised uh, and South Carolina did vote uh, for independence on, on July the 2nd. So I think it was one of those, those deals. And, and I've got several in my, in my book that you have, uh, I mean, politicians are politicians, whether you're talking about 2011 or 1776. And uh, uh, when, when independence was first uh, brought up before Congress, Virginia's Richard Henry Lee had made a motion on, on June the 7th to declare independence. And a couple of days later, Congress took up that motion and debated it. And one of the people who spoke against it was James Wilson from uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, Wilson had all along been a follower of Dickinson, all along a, a person who had opposed independence at every turn. And that begins to get out into the Philadelphia press. And Wilson is vilified in the Philadelphia press. And a movement begins in Pennsylvania to get Wilson out of Congress and replace him with somebody who was much more pro-independence. And Wilson then goes to the Congress and asks the, the Congress, particularly goes to the radicals, to John Adams, Sam Adams, and that group, and says, won't you vouch for me and tell the people of, of Philadelphia that I've really supported independence? Well, they knew that he hadn't supported independence, but they knew that if, he, if they said that he had, they had him. He would vote for independence. 
And sure enough, in that procedural vote on July the 1st, Wilson voted against independence, but in the real McCoy, the next day, he votes for independence. So there are all kinds of, of uh, deals. I mean, politicians make deals. <laughs> uh -huh. within the population of the country over this issue? And, and also, to what degree, if any, was there an exodus of loyalists okay. back Okay, sure. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, both points are, are good points. Uh, the, um, John Adams once said that, that he never heard anyone call for independence openly in Boston until the fall of 1774. Now, whether his mind played tricks on him or not, uh, I don't know. But what, and it's very difficult to gauge public opinion because there's no Gallup polls and uh, the colonial assemblies, as I mentioned earlier, 35, 40% of the adult white males couldn't vote, so we don't know what they, who they would have voted for or what they, they stood for. And the, virtually every one of the colonial assemblies was uh, uh, poorly, uh, poorly represented. Uh, the, the, the eastern sections predominated. In, in Pennsylvania, for example, um, about 50% of the population lived in the three counties around Philadelphia and the other 50% west of Philadelphia. But those three counties with 50% of the population had 75% of the seats in the Pennsylvania Assembly. And that was true in almost every, every colony. So the East really dominates. And the, the colonial assemblies are very conservative, but they probably didn't adequately represent uh, popular uh, opinion. But what we do know is after January, after the King's speech is known, after Common Sense is published, and after the Battle of Quebec, the lid blows off. And starting in about March, uh, everything from committees of safety down in towns and county levels up to colonial assemblies began to authorize their delegates in Congress to vote for independence. Or they will say things to them uh, you're now free to vote in a way that you think will be in the best interest of this colony. Whereas previously, they had often categorically been instructed, do not vote for, for independence. And when Richard Henry Lee introduced that motion for independence on June the 7th, he was actually just introducing a motion that had been drafted by the Virginia Assembly in Williamsburg and sent to Lee to, to introduce. So uh, I, I think pretty clearly uh, from March on down to July, there is a groundswell of opinion uh, on behalf of, of independence. And as far as the loyalists are concerned, there was a, a huge loyalist um, migration out of the country during the Revolutionary War. In, in fact, as some historians have pointed out that um, we think of the French Revolution as being a, a far bloodier revolution than the American Revolution, people being taken to the guillotine and, and whatever. But uh, the, 
the percentage of the American population that went into exile, was driven into exile during the revolution, was unlike anything that happened in France. There was something on the order of about 50,000 uh, loyalists uh, went into to exile during the revolution. And they go at, at different times. Some leave before the war, most leave uh, once the war breaks out, or they leave when the, when the war gets close to them, when the British Army come in close to them. And uh, the final uh, exodus occurs right at the end. Thousands of loyalists left from Charleston, South Carolina, early in 1783 and from New York in December of 1783, leaving with the British Army when they evacuated uh, those two uh, colonies or, or states, as they were being called by that time. So, th so there is quite a migration uh, out. I, I began my career, my first book was on Joseph Galloway, uh, who, who no one has ever, ever heard of because he bet on the wrong side. He was, a, he, he was the leader of the conservatives in the first Congress, uh, but he couldn't support the war, and so he refused to serve in the second Congress and declared that he would remain neutral during the war. And he remained neutral until late 1776 when he was convinced that the British were going to win it, and then he offered his services to the British and served as an intelligence official and as, as police commissioner of occupied Philadelphia uh, during, the, during the war. And uh, as, as the war winds down, Galloway has no future in America. And he and his daughter, who was 18 years old, went into exile in England. And his wife stayed in Philadelphia in a desperate struggle to try to to retain the family property. And they were never again uh, reunited. She died here, he died in England in 1803. So it, it, this whole thing was a case involving all kinds of personal uh, to turmoil. It really affected people's lives and turned, it upside, turned them upside down. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you for having me.